This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, podcast fans. Uh, got Jared here. I hope you guys are doing well. I hope everything um, is copacetic, as my uh, dad would say. So, true story. I think most of you that follow this podcast know that I've been working with an organization called Nasaga for for not a long time, but I you know something along the lines of four or five years. Great people, wonderful people, and I'm hoping to get as many. Nasaga folks on this podcast as possible because I believe in the organization and it is a little bit of a plug that I'm doing right now. I just want more people to be familiar with, with, with what this organization does. And it just so happens that I have somebody who I met at Nasaga, who I would argue is like a big part of the organization uh, here with us today. But I'm going to keep you in a little, just a little bit more suspense. Look, I've been doing game-related stuff for a very long time. I mean, probably I would say like 30 years. So I've played in a lot of games. I've taken part in a lot of simulations. I've run a lot of those things. And any time, not to say that I'm important because I'm not, but any time my ears perk up or eyes perk up and get super invested in a seminar or workshop about games, I hate to say it this way, but I know it's good because I've just done thousands of these things. And at Nasaga last year in Montreal, I met... uh, our guest for today, uh, Ray Kimball. And I'm going to tell you uh, what the name of his company is in a second. But even more important than that, I had never met him before. And I had just sort of walked into this sort of like crisis simulation game about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was one of those things where if you know me, I don't blow smoke. Um, I sat down and was just immersed in playing the role of Nikita Khrushchev in this Cuban Missile Crisis simulation. And it was honestly the not just the most I've learned, but just the most fun, which is what a game is supposed to be. So Ray Kimball is here. So uh, his company is called 42 Educational Games Coaching and Design, or 42 Ed Games for short. And don't worry if you're interested in checking out um, some of the things that he does. We'll get to his information towards the end of the pod. Um, so that was super long-winded, <laughs> but a necessary long-winded. So, Ray, how are you, man? Jared, I am fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on, and thanks for not blowing up the world when you were <laughs> last year. I attempted to be as uh, diplomatic as humanly possible. And yeah, I, I like I said, it was just so much fun. So I had to have you on. Um well, look, right, as I was saying to you before we started, I, I'm the least important person involved in this whole project. So I think for our listeners, right, maybe um, if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, where you're from, uh, just a little bit of an origin story. Yeah, absolutely. So my origin story, I just wrapped up a total of 30 years in uniform serving in the United States Army, uh, four years as a cadet at West Point, 26 years uh, as a commissioned officer. Uh, did a bunch of, of different jobs, was a helicopter pilot, was uh, what we call a strategist, which basically means I was somebody who was paid to think fast, uh, read fast and write well. 
Um, and then finally wrapped up my time as an academy professor at West Point, which is one of the permanent military faculty uh, that was there. And, you know, loved all my jobs in the Army. Um, it's like it's like a parent, right? You love all your kids equally. Um, but I really do have a special place in my heart for my time teaching at West Point. I taught for a total of 10 years. And it was really in that role that I discovered the power of game-based learning. Uh, I started using it very early on uh, during my first tour as a very junior instructor there and was was blown away by the by the power of it and can certainly talk more about that kind of that initial piece and what that looked like uh and and when i came back as a permanent faculty member knew that that was something that i wanted to advocate for and be a part of and so i you know i continued to use it in my own classes i continued to push for it to be implemented elsewhere at the academy. And when it came time for me to retire from the army, I, you know, I thought about, you know, what do I want to do next, right? What do I, what, what's next in my life? Cause I'm not quite ready to be that old guy who just, you know, sits on the porch. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and when I thought about it, I said, you know, the parts of my job that I really enjoy the most are game-based learning, but also helping faculty to do the things that they want to do in faculty development. My last job at West Point, I was the chief of faculty development there. Lots of different kind of complicated moving pieces, but mm -hmm. the core thread that ran throughout all of them was that I was there to help reduce barriers to faculty development and help them kind of realize whatever they wanted to be in terms of their vision of themselves as faculty members. And so I said, well, maybe there's a way that I can do both. And so I launched my company, 42 Educational Games, Coaching and Design, 42 Ed Games for short, as you mentioned. Uh, and that's what I do now. I work with uh, predominantly higher ed faculty, but also some corporate um, and high school folks to really help people see the power of game-based learning. Oh, that's super cool. Now, uh, at when you were at West Point, right? So I, I just have a few questions just about your sort of experience. And by the way, um, Thank you for your service. I'm, I know that's like a weird thing these days, right? It almost, you almost have to like stop. And again, I don't get particularly political on this podcast, as I say often, but like it is kind of funny to me that like even just saying that, all of a sudden people are wondering, well, is that is that person a Republican? Are they a Democrat by saying that? Right. Is it, is it right? Sickly? You know? Is it, yeah. So, yeah. but in all seriousness, thank you, man. Like, I, no, I, I appreciate I it. I, I always say it was a, a privilege to serve, and, and it really was. Yeah. Now, so let's talk a, bit, a little bit about that, right? So, um, so what were you teaching there? Like, what kind of courses did you teach? Yeah. So when I first came on the faculty, so the the military faculty model at West Point, you initially start as what we call a rotator, which means that the Army sends you to grad school somewhere to get a master's degree. And then you come to West Point and you teach on the faculty for two to three years. Uh, and then you go back out into the Army. So West Point calls it its second graduating class, right? Because okay. obviously the first graduating class is the thousand or so cadets that we graduate every year. But along with them, every year we send out, you know, 150, 200 officers out into the Army who have spent five years uh, deeply thinking about whatever subject they were teaching, right? Two years in, in grad school and then a couple of years teaching. And we're, we're putting that intellectual capital back out of the Army. And so that was my first tour at West Point. I had the privilege of teaching in the Department of History there, uh, primarily teaching, well, I was teaching all international history and, and kind of 
went through a couple different courses as we were evolving the curriculum during that time. And, and I actually had kind of a branch path in that, you know, most folks, they, they serve in a department their whole time. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to go work in one of the independent research centers there on the dean staff. So I was part-time teaching in the department and part-time doing this center's mission of, of reaching out in, to junior officers and helping develop them. Right. Um, so, but, but I would tell you, West Point is an amazing place to teach in general, small section sizes. Uh, you know, to teach a section of larger than 18 cadets requires the personal approval of the dean, who's a one-star gotcha. general. Uh, and that approval comes is very hard to get. Um, mm -hmm. So you've got small class sizes. The expectation is you're engaging with your cadets and, and that you're not only teaching them your particular discipline, but that you're also coaching them about their future identity as a member of the profession of arms as sure. an officer. With critical so, thinking, essentially, is really no, what you're talking thinking, about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, critical thinking. And, and so it's a really wonderful place to teach history. Right. Because you are you're pushing them. Right. You're pushing them to take what they're reading and apply it to the world and and use it to think deeply about the world as it is and the world as it was. Um, and, you know, that ethos coupled with the small class size gives you just a wonderful range of opportunities to experiment with different pedagogies. And the Department of History, especially uh, at has a wonderful track record of encouraging their faculty just to try new things, try different things, and giving them the the space and the leeway to do so. So it's it's a wonderful place to teach. No, it sounds it. I mean, when I used to go there a lot as a kid, so I know before the pod, you were saying that you were a New York guy, and so was I. I mean, I grew up in Westchester, so we used to go up to West Point for Point Con when I was a little kid, right? Um, I had a lot of friends up there, and a, you know, we we would go up there and game and even though this has nothing to do with the military per se, but if you're listening out there and you are in the, whether it's Westchester County or even the city, the Thayer has the best brunch that I've ever been to. It, it really is pretty it's, impressive. So if you are listening to this, besides the fact that we're going to get into talking about some cool games in a second, go to the Thayer to have brunch at West Point. Um, so this, so again, backing up. So it sounds like you had a really fruitful experience, um, there. And by the way, even backing up further, I mean, before you started doing all the academic work and the teaching, if you don't mind me asking, um, did you get deployed? I mean, when you were like, how did how did that work? And I guess maybe another question would be like, what rank were you? Yeah, I, I did. So, um, so I did a total during my time in service. I did a total of four deployments: uh, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and East Africa. Um, mm -hmm. Deployment deployments ranging from six months to nine months to a year, depending on on which you know garden spot you're talking about. Right. Um, and in fact, I almost uh, I almost kind of missed my window to go teach at West Point because I was deployed for the the opening phase of the Iraq war in 2003 mm -hmm. I was part of 3rd infantry division the uh, the initial one of the initial spearheads into Iraq um and it and it just so happened that they needed to switch out commanders at a time that still allowed me to to go and do my grad school on schedule so I was right. I was incredibly fortunate in that So respect. what's really wild and coincidental is that I just had Matthew Klein or AKA Matt Rendar, who does all the battle tribe stuff. He was in third infantry. Um, he yes. was, uh, he was Very in cool. mechanized. I mean, he was telling me some stories. It was pretty wild. I I'm almost afraid to ask what your experience was, especially when you were there. 
Yeah, it, it, it was it, it was pretty wild. So I had the privilege of being I was a I was a troop commander in uh, in third squadron, seventh cavalry. So as I mentioned, I was a helicopter pilot. So at that time, uh, divisional cavalry squadrons had both uh, armored vehicles and helicopters. Um, that is that is not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Long story on army reorganization. But at that time, they were mixed air ground formations. My responsibility in that uh, in that organization was the maintenance of the helicopters. I led what was called the maintenance troop. Right. Uh, so arming, fueling, fixing, uh, you name it. If it was needed to keep a helicopter in the fight, uh, I owned those resources and I was responsible for it. And so, yeah, 890 kilometers uh, driving north in 14, 21 days. Um, the, the stories keep getting better the farther you keep <laughs> right, right, right. from it. Um, but, you know, the thing that I'm most proud of is that I brought every single one of my soldiers home. No, that's uh, great. And, and, you know, not every leader can say that. And, 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 and that's not necessarily the fault of any one individual, but, uh, it is, uh, it, it was a special point of pride with me that I was able to bring them home. And, and in fact, uh, getting ready to celebrate, uh, our 20 year reunion, the members of the trooper getting ready to gather again here in August in the Savannah area to, to celebrate bringing everybody back and to catch up on everybody. And and do you kind of keep in touch with all the people that were under you? I try to, you know, some folks you, you, you lose touch with, um, some folks, unfortunately have passed on uh, either uh, due to, co- we lost a couple folks in the intervening years to combat. Uh, unfortunately, we, you know, our, our group was not immune to uh, the, the plague of veteran suicide. We've had a couple folks yeah. die by suicide as well. Um, and so it just makes it that much more important to, to stay in touch and celebrate the people uh, who are still around, and you know, social media is a uh, <laughs> is a is a wretched hive of scum and villainy in many <laughs> right. respects. Um, but it really is wonderful for keeping in touch with folks and seeing how they're doing and checking in on them from time to time. No, gotcha. Well, good luck when when you meet everybody. I mean, that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm and, super excited. Yeah, and and I would imagine I never served, so I'm not going to pretend to necessarily understand your experience because I don't. But at the same time, I will make the assumption. Um, I mean, when you when you're in an intense moment like that, I mean, it must create a bond that I'll never really be able to understand. It it, it absolutely does. You know, you you learn a lot about a person uh, in situations like that, and uh, and 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 those those bonds just just keep recurring in. Uh, in unexpected ways, you know, one of my NCOs who was in my vehicle with me during the during the drive north, uh, while I was at West Point, I got to see his son come in as a cadet uh, and eventually and graduate as a member of the of the of the class of, of 23. Actually, he just graduated this year, right. um, and so getting to see that son following in his father's footsteps is just one of many ways that I've seen the legacy of the soldiers that I served with uh, continue to play out both in military and civilian worlds. Yeah. What did you ride north of? Bradley so, or I would know I would trust me, I, I wish. This was uh this was back in the early days. It was a, a canvas sided Humvee. Oh just God. four wheeled uh driving through the desert uh sandbags on the floorboards the, yeah all the we hadn't quite graduated to the the hillbilly armor yet at that point because right. the ied threat 
had not really manifested. But but yeah, it was uh, it was not lost on me that uh, there was not a lot between me and the outside world. And so uh, and that was the case. And and I was relatively lucky in that I was just in a Humvee. I had soldiers driving fuel tankers, right, carrying 2000 gallons of jet fuel. So you want to talk unarmored. So yeah. you want to talk about some folks who really had some anxiety yeah. uh, about small arms fire. It was those folks. And so I, I knew that I had a responsibility not to expose them to any unnecessary danger. Yeah, no, I got you. I got you. Because they're I mean, lives are essentially in your hands as the commander. So and it was it was very sobering. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It was a constant reminder that uh, that. I was responsible for that. Yeah. So I guess maybe this this is the reason why you are you are one of the calmest people. <laughs> you know, like uh like associate, I don't know what we would call our relationship, but like you are incredibly calm and I would imagine like being in those kinds of situations makes the daily like routine of life like a joke to you. <laughs> you know well, what I, I mean? I, maybe maybe that's a, a overstatement, but Yeah, yeah. J- joke is a little fun. look, there are things in everybody's lives that are serious and that are important. Uh, and I would never certainly minimize what anyone is is going through at any given time. But but it is true that there have been days when I've woken up and you know, I've looked at the calendar and I know it's going to be a rough day. And then the little thing in the back of my mind says, but nobody's going to mortar me today. Yeah, exactly. There, an RPG <laughs> is not going to go across the hood of my yeah. car. You know, it's really, that, yeah, that is a helpful perspective. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. Like, Without divulging too many details, I was I was on a trip once, right, for one of the schools I worked for, and we we went to the Middle East. We went to Israel, right, and it just so happened that there was a mortar attack, like maybe ten or twelve miles from where we were, right. And I can remember showing some of my students like the bomb shelter and looking at their eyes, mm-hmm. and and I just sort of turned to them and was like, guys, like this is reality like here, like you're getting to experience what it's like when you have two groups of people who don't necessarily see eye to eye. And this is what happens. It's very, so like next time you're complaining about your homework, think about this moment, you know? So, um, all right. So let me ask you then, right? Like just, uh, segueing for a second. So, um, would you say, I mean, have you been a gamer your whole life? Or, or do you know what I mean? Like, or was yeah. were games something that you discovered while you were teaching? So I, I've definitely been a gamer my whole life. Played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, loved it. Uh, had the uh, had you know in in basic D anD D had everything from the old pink box all the way up through the black and green. I think they were advanced and expert. I don't remember, mm-hmm. but, but had all the boxes when it, advanced D and D came out, which I guess is technically two E. I don't know. I've lost the version number. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but still have my AD and D books uh, sitting. Actually, my son has them now. That's why I'm not mm-hmm. seeing them over my shoulder. Um, and uh, and so yeah, so. Did D&D as a kid. Uh, also enjoyed, you know, the 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 standard board games, trivia games. I There is a notorious family story that I was so competitive on Trivial Pursuit that at one point I grabbed the box of questions and actually went through them to, to memorize the answers. Um, <laughs> true story. Uh, yeah. I say that without a lot of pride, but I, I need to show all, all aspects of me as a game. You know what, though, right? Just so that you don't feel bad about yourself i just got into uh the the movie dune and the books dune right and played dune imperium mm-hmm. for the first time uh like last week 
And I literally am thinking about doing the same thing, just buying my own copy and going through all the cards so that I'm ready for next time we play. So don't don't feel bad. I think yeah. it's just it might That's be a genetic right. thing that all of us gamers have, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there's just there's that desire to compete. No, um, for sure. Yeah. And then continue to do uh, D&D while I was a cadet at West Point. It was a great way of kind of blowing off steam and and transporting yourself out of the uh uh out out of the environment did a lot of digital gaming too had the commodore 64 when i was a kid and so had all the 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 c64 games you would expect and then continued to do pc gaming uh again as a nice kind of stress relief uh when i was an officer uh, nice to kind of jump into deus ex for uh for an hour or two and just ignore the world or jedi knight or, or whatever right um but but definitely yeah definitely had a gaming background which which i think is really what led me to be comfortable experimenting with that in the classroom was yeah. that I, you know, I had that enjoyment. And so it wasn't necessarily a new identity that I had to take on. It was just a, a different application of that identity. Yeah. And on that note, so, it, and again, you know, I I can understand how sometimes it could be maybe even hard to remember what I'm about to ask you, right? Because as gamers, like, I don't know about you, but for me, it's always been second nature. Let me ask you then, do you remember the moment when you said to yourself, I think a game could be really fun or a game could be really useful when it came to something something you were teaching at West Point. Almost like the origin of when when did you implement that game for the first time? Oh, I I, I 100% remember it. It's very vivid in my memory. So so I need to give I'm I'm going to give a little bit of deep background here. Uh, we love and, deep background yeah. on this podcast. So um, and, talk and, and away, sir. Awesome. <laughs> um, so the course that I was teaching at the time, the I mentioned I was teaching international history at West Point, and my my first year that I was teaching there was the tail end of what we called the world history sequence, which was it was a no kidding two semester world history course. And when I say world history, I mean Western and East Asian and African and Middle East all in one course. So you would literally, you'd be teaching Rome one day, and then you'd be teaching the warring states in China the next day. And then you'd be teaching uh, the, the, the um, uh, Indian, uh, the, the South Asian subcontinent history. And, and it jumped around like that. Um, and, and you did that for 40 lessons a semester, two semesters. So it, it was this really kind of dizzying array of stuff to teach. And it meant that inevitably you were teaching something that was out of your comfort zone, right? So my degree, my master's degree, I was a Russian historian. I did Russian Soviet history, 20th century, loved it, still love it to this day. Um, but, but that meant that 80% of the lessons that I was teaching, I had had kind of no grad school background in. So, and, and to add on to that, I'm teaching first year students who have just come through cadet basic training and are still trying to decide, my God, what is this environment that I've come into? So they're always sleep deprived and they're always looking for ways to kind of save energy and, and, and retain their focus. So if you just stand up there and lecture to them, 
heads heads just coming down left and right, eyes blazing over. Right. You'll, you'll lose them immediately. And and that's the case for most undergrads, but it is especially challenging with West Point first year. So right from the start, I was like, I have got to get some experiential learning in this course. And it's funny because I hadn't even heard the term experiential learning. At that <laughs> right. I just but you knew. knew. I just knew instinctively. I was like, all right. Direct instruction yeah. is not going to work here. <laughs> right, and, right. Yeah. And so we had a, uh, and so we, we had a lesson that was about Greek philosophy and, uh, and it, and it presented kind of the different philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, the Stoics, there were a couple others in, in the mix. Um, and my son at the time was, let's see, 2005. So he was just going into like some form of preschool. Um, and so my son's education was on my mind and I said, all right, let's, let's do some role playing with this. And so I came into class and I said, all right, I have invented time travel and I, and the reason I have invented time travel is because I've gone back and I have grabbed the great Greek philosophers and I want them to pitch me on how they're going to teach my son. Right. How are they going to teach him to be a good man, to be a, an effective citizen? And you all are going to role play those philosophers. And so your your job is to convince me that I should use your school or your approach to philosophy to teach my son. Um, now, these were 55 minute sections that we had. So, I mean, it goes it goes quickly. Um, I figured that this little activity was going to take. 20, maybe 25 minutes. And then the rest of it, I'd have to do something else. The cadets glommed on it immediately. And we went the whole distance and could have gone another 20 minutes. They were, they were engaged. They were, you know, engaging each other, not, and, and civilly, not like tearing each other down, but critiquing each other, doing those things that we want people to do in historical discourse. Uh, and I was like, okay, there's something here. Right. right. The aha it's moment. <laughs> the aha moment. This is powerful. This has something. And so I made the point of having some kind of game, um, almost always a role playing game uh, that was part of uh, that, that was interspersed throughout the courses I was teaching, whether it was that Western uh, civilization course or late the next year, we migrated to more of a regional history focus. So I was teaching a Western Civ course in the first semester and then a Russian history course uh, in the second semester. But I kept that game-based st learning structure because I was like, this is powerful. This is meaningful. Um, and, and this is how I get cadets engaged. And, and, you know, you don't, you don't teach for the evaluations, but it certainly didn't hurt that my student evaluations routinely came back as this was great. This was the most engaging class session I've ever had. More West Point professors should do this. I was like, okay, not only am I seeing good results of their learning, but they're clearly enjoying it as well. Let's keep doing this. Yeah, that's awesome. And by the way, you know, it's funny. Um, I feel like we may be kindred spirits <laughs> because um, I did something very similar with my seventh graders a number of years ago where, and I had the same result. Uh, yeah. You know, essentially, we were doing a unit on um, China and specifically we were looking at the different philosophies, you know, from that region, right? So we talked a lot about Confucianism and Taoism and a number of others, right? And again, like, 
if you're not a teacher out there, meaning if you're listening to this podcast and you're more of like a, a gamer, but not necessarily thinking about the teaching element, I'm not going to put words in the raise mouth. I'll speak for myself. There's nothing worse than having that glazed over look that students give you, right? So what I did was instead of lecturing about um, Taoism and Confucianism and some of the other philosophies of the uh, ancient Near East, I did something very similar to Ray where I said to them, you're going to create a school modeled around the school that we were in. But I said to them, there has to be a element of your philosophy, whether it's Confucianism or Taoism or or whatever. And all of a sudden, it's just completely different. They're making blueprints of their of their schools. They're thinking about, well, how do I uh, take the four noble truths and integrate it into the mission statement? So again, like if you're if if you are a gamer but not necessarily a teacher, you. Just think back to your own experience in the classroom and imagine getting a chance to do that. And I know it sounds like I'm trying to sell here, but um, Ray, I mean, it, it, it sounds like an amazing project, ultimately. Yeah, I, I, and, and I agree 100% with everything that you said. It is just, it's so powerful. It's such a great way to engage and, and bring people in. Um, and, and, and there's empirical support for it as well. There's all kinds of empirical research out there that supports game-based learning as a form of experiential learning uh, and shows its effectiveness. So it's not just, it's not just soft and squishy. It's not just a fad. Um, there's hard qualitative and quantitative research out there as well that, that supports it as a best practice. Yeah. And it's funny too, like, um, though I do want to talk about your company in a second, but I want to make sure I get this in. Yeah, I mean, again, if you're now I'm speaking to our teachers, right? So if you're a teacher and you're listening to this podcast, look, if you even just do a cursory Google search, if you literally just type in game-based learning, you're going to find the same thing that I have found, the same thing that Ray has found, the same thing that many Nasaga members have found, which is Harvard Business School. Um, different colleges um, that are associated with the military. I could go sort of on and on and on and on. You're going to find people that have written scholarly articles in which they have found that games increase awareness, camaraderie in the classroom, gets people engaged, gets people having fun, and it does have an impact on children's and also adults' ability to learn. Um, so, right. Now, I know that you uh, had mentioned that so you're using games in the classroom, and you're also kind of working with West Point faculty. You're sort of helping them become better teachers. Could you talk a little bit more about that experience? Because I think it does, it seems like it leads into your career now. It, it does. So when I came back, I came back as, uh, back to West Point, I came back initially as the director of the Center for Junior Officers, which is a small research cell at West Point that advocates for professional development for junior officers out across the Army. Junior officers being folks who are in kind of their first stint of service, that first kind of four to six years where you're really kind of growing and developing yourself uh, as an officer. And, and traditionally, a lot of that individual development has been, you know, their schoolhouses, but a lot of it ends up kind of landing at the unit level. And some units do it well, and some units don't do it as well. And so the the big idea of the Center for Junior Officers was let's harness the power of modern communications to make developmental opportunities broadly available for junior officers, no matter where they are, no matter what unit they're in. 
Um, and so it was my work in that capacity that led the dean at the time, Brigadier General Cindy Jeb, to say, hey, let's take some of that CJO goodness and let's sprinkle it here within our faculty um, to, to help look at some of the systematic barriers that exist to faculty development and let's look at ways to take them down or at least minimize their impact. Because again, at West Point, the development of the faculty is primarily the responsibility of those individual departments. And that makes sense, right? Because you want them, you want that head of the physics and nuclear engineering department to be able to make sure that the opportunities for his uh, his faculty are, are robust and are helpful. But there are certain things that cross cut across all faculty, regardless of discipline, right? There needs to be research, there needs to be support for research, right? There needs to be advocacy for great teaching. There needs to be human subjects research oversight, things, things like that. And so those were the things that fell into, into my area in this new office that I created uh, called uh, Faculty Learning Innovation Collaboration and Research, or Flickr for short. Uh, I took on the title of Chief of Faculty Development. And really my my role was, hey, what are the things that are systematically impeding faculty development across the academy? Because, you know, it, it's a bureaucracy, right? Like any higher ed, there's, there's bureaucracy, there's red tape. Uh, and so where were areas that we could reduce those, that we could apply kind of select areas of funding uh, to, to have more applicability? And so and, and I did that and thoroughly enjoyed it. And one of the things that I did kind of leading up to that was working with the history department. Um, I helped them explore a game based pedagogy called reacting to the past. And which is which basically uses primary real primary source documents to have uh, students play out real intellectual collisions of the past. It's not reenacting the past, it's reacting to the past um, and really having them play out what plausibly could have happened and helping them gain a better understanding uh, of that culture and that society through it. Uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that uh, after I introduced that to the history department and kind of gave them some some tools, uh, they've now integrated that into one of the first year history courses. And it's now a, a permanent part of that course. They play the French Revolution game. Um, so, so again, that opportunity to advocate for game-based learning as part of an overall kind of push for empowering faculty and faculty development was, was really meaningful and really powerful for me. So, Ray, for somebody out there listening that maybe has never played a simulation like that, could you, you know, maybe give listeners a sense of what it might be like if you're one of those students that's engaging in that game? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so we'll talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give an example of one that uh, I recently worked on, which is uh, Charles Darwin. Um, in the Darwin game, uh, you play a member of the Royal Society, which is this this overarching body, which still exists today, that rewards scientific achievement uh, at that at the time in the British Empire, now in the in the Commonwealth, um, and and. The specific thing that you're looking at is things that are leading up to the uh, or that are supporting Darwin's theory of evolution. And so maybe you are playing the role of an anthropologist who has very strong feelings on racial constructs, or maybe you are playing a geologist who 
has very strong feelings about what the the, the geological layers show. Um, but the bottom line is, regardless of the role you're playing, you are assigned a role that is either an actual person from history or is a plausible amalgam of someone who could have existed at the time. And you are using real primary source documents from that period. So in the Darwin game, students are using on the origin of species, but they're also using some of the critique documents that were published uh, on, uh, on, on Darwin's work at the time to have this intellectual collision, to have this back and forth that ultimately culminates in Will Darwin be awarded the Copley Medal, which is the Royal Society's highest honor for scientific achievement? Will he be awarded the Copley Medal for uh, for the theory of evolution with kind of the attendant impacts that that will have on British society? So that's just one example. And the great thing about reacting games is that they're not just Western SIP, right? There are all there are reacting games that are set uh, on six out of the seven continents. There's none set on Antarctica yet that I'm aware of, but Somebody out there may be working on one. Um, and in periods of history ranging all the way uh, from uh, from ancient times up to modern history. So you, if you go take a look at uh, reactingconsortium.org, which is the Reacting Consortium's website, you can see this amazing list of games that are out there uh, that can be played and that range anywhere from one or two sessions all the way out to 10 class sessions. I think what the coolest part of that explanation, right, if, if we're thinking about this from the perspective of a student is, you know, it's one thing to tell students, especially primary sources, right? It's one thing to tell students that, hey, this is a very important primary source. So you use the French ex uh, Revolution as an example. So, you know, taking a look at the writings of like Robespierre or Marat or Suchet or or any of, or CA, as I should say, no, Suchet was a French general, but um you change the dynamic when you ask students to read those things and they just have to write an essay or something. It's an entirely different beast when all of a sudden you now have like a superpower in the game because you went home and read. And it's just so amazing when students will do that work and it's almost as if they're not working, which I don't know for you, right? But for me, that's like the, the best moment, you know? Oh, it is. It absolutely is. And, and, Folks who teach reacting games constantly talk about this phenomenon that students on their own with no prompting from the faculty member will say, hey, we, we got to get together outside of class and strategize. Yeah. We got to get together and, and synchronize our arguments so that we're we're doing we're, that we're getting an edge on that. I mean, if you told those students, oh, I want you to do this work. Out of class, oh, OK, I guess. But but in reacting games, so often the students will just do it on their own because they want that competitive edge. Yeah. On their peers yeah. And they're enjoying, yeah. And and they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. And they're enjoying themselves. You and know? they're learning. Yeah. yeah. Pretty. It's pretty wild stuff. Jeremy Cadell, who I'm going to have on the podcast um, sooner rather than later, he used to tell me a story at, at some of the Nisaga conferences about like his Rwanda simulation where his students were – uh, in this simulation about crisis management in Rwanda, and they just produced these documents that were hundreds of pages long, like college students, some, you know, and, yeah. and just sort of, uh, it, that's like the, a teacher's dream that kids are going to go and do that level of work, right? Yeah. Um, right. So 
So, right. Like in terms of you're having all these experiences at West Point, you develop um, all these programs to help. Um, I mean, it really like in a nutshell, it's almost like helping the professional development work of the institution. Yep. How do you go from that to what you're doing now, the company that you run? Yeah. So I, you know, as I was, as I was wrapping up my time at West Point, you know, I, I was, I was incredibly fortunate. I, I need to specify this up front. I was incredibly fortunate that I was able to leave on my own terms, right. As opposed to being forced out or losing my position. So, so I need to acknowledge up front the amazing amount of privilege that I had uh, in this. Um, I was able to really kind of make a decision about two years out that, okay, it's, it's time for me to leave. I've done what I want to do. I've achieved what I want to achieve. It, it's time to move on. And so I was able to be very deliberate in thinking about my transition to civilian life and what I wanted that to be. And so part of that is, well, what do I want to do next? And, you know, some of the typical options that are available for folks, you can move into uh, what we call a GS or a general schedule job, which is where you're a government employee and you're a civilian government employee and you're doing something similar. So I could have gone and been uh, a civilian strategist uh, building on my earlier work, or I could have gone and been a civilian faculty member at one of the professional military education institutions. And, And so that was one option. Another option was to go teach at a civilian school, right? Just be an associate faculty member, an adjunct faculty or or, or assistant faculty member um, at a civilian school. And and so I really had to sit and think about what are the things that make me happiest about my job? And and I touched on this earlier, what it really boiled down to for me was um, there are two things that make me happy. One is game-based learning in the classroom, just by far my favorite part of teaching. But the second is helping faculty achieve something that w- that they couldn't do or that was too challenging or, or too time consuming for them and helping them realize that dream. Um, both of those, every time I got to do that, I just got this charge of energy like, awesome, this is great, let's go do that. And so I said, all right, well, I wonder if there's a way to combine those. And and I went out and did some research. And what I found was there's a lot of educational gaming companies out there, right, who are making great products and and who are putting things out there that are just unbelievably useful for the classroom. Uh, And there is a growing understanding of the utility and the need of game-based learning. But I couldn't really find anybody who was trying to bridge that gap right, who was trying to help faculty members get over that initial hump of, oh, God, how do I actually put a game in my classroom? What's a what's a valid game? What's a useful game? What's my administration going to think about this? Um, and so helping folks. Uh, and so I said, all right, maybe there's something there. Maybe maybe there's an opportunity there. So I set up my my company. It's just a tiny little uh, one-person limited liability company. Um, and that's what I do now. I uh, so, And there's really kind of two aspects of it. So one is faculty members who want to bring games into their classroom but aren't really sure how to do it. Um, I'll work with them. I'll get a sense of their classroom context, of their institutional context, because both of those are super important, right? You, You can't, just as you have to have a game that meets their educational goals, you can't 
bring in a game that doesn't work with their institutional context, right? Some institutions are fine with the idea of a tabletop board game in the classroom, but are not okay with role-playing because they're worried about the TikTok effect, right? And some institutions are fine with the idea of role-playing in the classroom, but don't have the digital infrastructure to support a digital game. So, so not only do you have to consider what the learning goals are, but you've also got to make sure it's a good fit for the institution. And so once I get a sense of that, I go out, I find an off-the-shelf game for them, uh, make whatever tweaks are necessary. And the off-the-shelf game is really important, right? Because somebody has already done the legwork on the logistics. Somebody has already done the, the hard work to get that game out there in the world. They've done the playtesting. Um, and so I'll make whatever little tweaks are necessary, right? Maybe it's a modified set of rules to help work for that classroom. Maybe it is uh, an explainer video, whatever the case may be. And then I deliver that package to them in a way that they can take it and immediately run with it in their classroom, right? And immediately just go after it uh, and put it to use. And I can do all of that for about what they would typically pay to go to a conference, right? When you include conference fee, travel, lodging, food, all that, um, that's that's my price point. And so really what I'm what I'm aiming for is somebody who says, hey, you know what? Yeah, I have conference money this year, but I really want to spend that conference money instead on something to make my classroom more powerful. That's that's the person that I'm here to serve. So that's the that's the coaching piece of 42 Ed Games coaching and design. And then the other folks that I work with are folks who are doing game development, but just have things that are impinging on their time that they can't that has them kind of stalled, right? And, and I think anybody who's teaching at any level can understand this idea of, oh, I have this great idea for X. Maybe it's a game, maybe it's a book, but, but the day-to-day -day pressure of what I have to do just is keeping me from achieving it. And so again, for the price point of kind of the typical money that's out there for a faculty development grant in most institutions, um, I can take what they've done on that game so far, do some additional development, do some additional building out to get it to a point where it's no longer stuck, right? Where they can move it and they can move forward with it um, and do great things. And so that's the that's the design piece of 42 Ed Games coaching and design is to try and serve these, these two different sides of the puzzle, both ultimately with the goal of advocating for game-based learning in the classroom as a force for experiential learning. Yeah, it's a brilliant concept because as I was listening to you sort of explain um, the role that you're sort of serving, um, to me, what stood out more than anything else is something that I've heard teachers say so many times. And and I, this is from personal experience running conferences where, you know, I, I used to run conferences for NYSACE, which is the, uh, the uh, basically like the Association of New York uh, Independent Schools. And the kind of feedback that I would get more than any other type of feedback was this seems unbelievably amazing, but it scares the hell out of me. Right. So what you're doing, Ray, is essentially demystifying that fear. I yeah. think that's what yeah. it sounds like to me. And that's absolutely right. Because I think folks who have done game-based learning, I, I I'll never speak for everybody, but I do feel like it's a very common occurrence that that first time that you're going to bring game-based learning to the classroom, there's that pit, there's that feeling in the pit of your stomach of, oh God, what if this fails horribly? 
what if I lay this game out there and all my students just stare at each other and nobody says anything and I end up with an entire you know, class period of silence, you know, I will, I'll never recover from that, right? I'll never get caught up. And so, and I think that's a very common occurrence. And so having somebody along with you to say, you can do this. Hey, I'm, I'm giving you something that's proven. I'm giving you something that I know will work with you to get over that initial hump of fear, I, I think is enormously helpful. And that's what I hope anyway. Yeah. You know, just out of curiosity, have you ever thought about almost like creating like a membership, like in which t- you could build a community through your company? Um, I, you know, I've thought about it. Honestly, there are, there, there are a lot of amazing gaming communities already out there. Um, you know, the reacting consortium is one. Nasaga you mentioned is another. I would rather support the work that those communities are doing, the game-based advocacy that those folks are doing, rather than try to have yet another. No, that site. makes sense. That um, makes total sense. Yeah. You're I mean, really the scalpel, not the yeah. machete, so to speak, even though I don't know why that came to mind as my uh, example. But I'm, I'm, I'm good with that as a metaphor. Yeah, I mean, one of the yeah. things that I did in my previous life as director of the Center for Junior Officers was running an online community. And it's an enormous amount of work. And it requires a lot of focus and a lot of dedication, almost to the exclusion of anything else. So yeah. I would really rather harness and support existing communities, which which my company has done, right? We have been a sponsor for both uh, Nasaga conferences and reacting conferences, specifically because I believe in what both of those communities are doing. Yeah. So on that note, um, because believe it or not, we've almost been talking for an hour and there's definitely a couple of things that I really want to get to, even though I would surmise that you'll probably be on again at some point. It always happens where, you know, we we never get to everything. But something you just said, um, if you don't mind, how did you connect with Nasaga? Because that's where I met you for the first time. How how did you find this organization, and what was your sort of take on it when you connected with it? Um, I was incredibly fortunate that during my doctoral program, so I did a doctorate in learning technologies uh, through Pepperdine, um, and one of my instructors in that doctoral program was Mark Chen, uh, who's been associated with Nasaga forever, and he taught our game-based learning course. And that was such a cool experience because being in his game-based learning course was an aha moment for me of, okay, I understood that this stuff works now I understand why it works, right? Now I understand the underlying theory behind it and how it fits into other theories of learning and development. And and he had mentioned Nasaga as part of his conversations with us. Fast forward uh, a couple of years as I was looking for advocacy organizations and was following Mark on social media and saw the mention of Nasaga, um, was not unfortunately was not able to get to a Nasaga conference until the pandemic hit. Um, and then I, I want to say, I know I was in the 21 conference. I think I was in the, in the 20 online conference as well. Um, but, but those online conferences were my first exposure in a saga. And even the online conferences were, were wonderful and were enormously engaging and super helpful. Uh, and then getting to do Nasaga 22 in person just solidified for me. I'm like, oh yeah. This is an organization that I want to be part of and that, that I want to support. Yeah. So in terms of 
just trying to put this into perspective for people that might not know what Nasaga is, right? So I'll do part of this, and then I'm going to ask you a question, right? So if you're listening out there, um, if you're thinking about a Nasaga conference right now, if you're a corporate person, if you're a teacher, if you like games, um, what I want you to imagine is I want you to imagine going to a conference. Um, now, depending on what year we're talking about, I mean, there might be 30 people, 50 people, 100 people from all walks of life at this conference. And essentially what you do when you go is it's much like a lot of other in some ways, it's much like a lot of other professional development conferences where there are breakout sessions, there are seminars that are being run, workshops being run, keynote speakers, things along those lines. And basically what ties all of the different people together and what ties the different um, activities that you can do is basically games and how you can use them. So Ray, based on that um, kind of description, um, what was it like for you the first time that you attended a conference in person? What was that experience like? Like what stood out to you as being so powerful that you would be not just like attending, but like I would argue that you're really working with the with with the board at this point? Yeah. I, I mean, what I was very fortunate to be presenting at the conference. So I got to uh, uh, as Jared mentioned, I, you know, ran my Cuban Missile Crisis game there and and got amazing feedback on that play test. Um, but just the thing that really resonated with me was that it combined all the best aspects of a professional conference with a game convention, right? So think about if you've been to a game convention, think about what your favorite part of that was. It was probably getting to stumble from table to table and try out different games and get a sense of what worked for you and what didn't. And hearing from people who were active in that space and sharing those perspectives. Um, well, that's that's Nasaga as well, where instead of going to a session and and, you know, kind of the worst conferences out there are the ones where people just bring their paper up and read their paper. And and you're like, oh, Dear God, this this could have been a podcast. What are you doing to me? Um, Nasaga's not like that, right? You're going in and you're playing a game in every session. And maybe that game is Lego Serious Play, or maybe it is a, a development for first-year college students that are trying to kind of make their way, their first-generation first-year college students who are trying to make their way. The beauty of Nasaga is the, the broad spectrum of folks that it brings in. There's corporate, there's K-12, there's higher ed. Um, the bottom line is it's anybody who's working in a space that involves games-based education, and there are so many out there, um, there's somebody there in the saga that represents kind of that field and that you can draw from and, and you can learn from. Uh, and so I was just blown away by the breadth of networking opportunities and amazing games to find out about. And for me, it was especially valuable because there have been, uh, I'll, I'll be conservative. There have been at least two games that I can remember right off my right off the top of my head right now that I have taken from a play at Nasaga and recommended them for a client or use them in an educational seminar. So if you're somebody who works in the game-based learning space, there is an immediate impact uh, of utility of stuff that you do in, at a Nasaga conference that you can put into work in your life. Yeah, what a a, a great description. <laughs> I mean, 
I would also say too, just to kind of add on to that, um, if you go to a Nasaga conference in person and you meet the folks that are there, we are talking about smart, high-powered individuals where you're going to take something from just about every person that you meet. And I also will say um, that we're talking about a diverse set of learners and diverse set of practitioners where... If you think that our own experiences, depending on who we are and where we are in society, what we might believe, where we come from, that plays a huge role, I find, in a lot of the seminars that are run and the games that are run, which is, uh, um, I think, a necessity in the world that we live in today. Um, So sort of my final kind of question, right, before we kind of get into where can we find um, 42 Ed Games and maybe plug uh, the Nasaga conference that's coming up in October. But before we get to that, your Cuban Missile Crisis game is really fun. (laughs) I like, you know, it's one of those things where I know it's a good game when I sit down and all I can think about in that hour and 20 minutes is the game. Nothing else. So I know it's not out yet, but... But Ray, can you highlight a couple of things about what makes that simulation so powerful and what makes it so unique compared to a lot of the other games, frankly, that we've been t- have even talked about so far? Yeah. So the game. Uh, so the game is Eyeball to Eyeball: The Cuban Missile Crisis. It is forthcoming from Central Michigan University Press. Uh, their their model is they their games press does Kickstarters. For games, and so the Kickstarter for Eyeball to Eyeball will likely be uh, towards the end uh, of this year. You know, Kickstarters can kind of slide around a little bit. There can be some challenges with that, but that's that's what it looks like right now. Um, it is primarily a role-playing game where you are playing in one of several factions that were historically involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you are playing a real-world person uh, who was. Involved in some way in the era of that time frame. And the reason why I say that, of course, for the U.S. and the Soviet side, you, you know, you have kind of the classic people that you would expect. Both of the Kennedy brothers, Khrushchev, um, Fidel Castro, um, but you've also got some of kind of the the lower levels of supporting players. So Robert McNamara as the Secretary of Defense. Um, uh, uh, Andre Gromyko as the Soviet foreign minister, Che Guevara uh, on the Soviet or on the Cuban side, and then you've also, if depending on how big you want your your class sizes, once you start getting into, and so if you're playing a class of fifteen to eighteen people, you're probably just going to play U.S. Soviets and Cubans, and that's probably what you've got space for. But when you start getting into bigger classes, 20 and 30 people, there are additional factions that you can bring in of the media, where now you can bring in Walter Cronkite, where now you can bring in Paul Harvey with their kind of unique worldviews and approach, because the Cuban Missile Crisis was a mass media crisis, right? It played out in television, on the radio, and so in as well as in newspapers. And so we have a media faction that that bears that out. And then there's also an international faction uh, that really brings out that while, yes, this was a superpower standoff, 
it had impacts on other parts of the world and other parts of the world were desperately trying to push back on it. So you have Utant as the Secretary General of the United Nations. You have um, uh, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn as this uh, about to be exiled Russian author. He hasn't been exiled yet. Um, and and again, the whole idea is getting the students to kind of expand their conception of what was the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Because many of them, the many of the generation that's in high school or college, really has no knowledge of the Cuban Missile Crisis other than we almost blew up the world. Okay, well, what does that actually mean? Let's actually talk about it. And so so you play it out. And one of the things that my co-author, Kimberly Redding, and I are proudest of is that you're having dialogue in your groups, but then when you're trying to communicate with the other factions, you can only do it in ways that were historically viable at the time, right? So Kennedy and Khrushchev can't just get up and go talk in the corner somewhere. They have to communicate through their ambassadors. And the system that mediates that is an online platform that we call Experiential Simulation, uh, or XSIM for short. It's a product from Mustard Square Design, which is an amazing game company that is supporting role-playing games more broadly. And really what XSIM does, there's two elements of it. One is it takes the decisions that leaders are making and, and puts in injects into the game based on it. So if Kennedy says, I'm going to set up a quarantine and Khrushchev says, I'm going to challenge the, the quarantine, then XSIM will generate a clash between the fleets and it will put that out in global media and it will send results to both sides so that people are seeing the consequences of their actions. And then it also allows for a limited amount of communication between factions in a way that is historically accurate. So the U.S. folks can communicate with some media on the U.S. side and the Soviet and Cuban folks can communicate with media that is ideologically friendly with them. And again, communicate Communicating through ambassadors is the only way to get the word between the U.S. and the Soviet sides. And there is no communication at all between the U.S. and Cuban sides because that was the historical norm. And so it really helps reinforce to students the challenging structural dynamics that existed uh, during the time. And I think really helps them get a sense of the stress of decision making in crises, because it's so easy to sit in judgment and go, oh, I, how could they be so reckless? And then uh, time and again, we see it in student debriefs during playtests where they'll say, I, I get it now. Things just started to stack up on me and things felt like they were taking on a life of their own. And I felt like I was hanging on by my fingernails, trying to stay abreast of what was going on. And we're like, yeah, because that's what happened in reality. That's when you see the oral histories of folks talking about it, that's the experience they describe. So congratulations. You've just built that empathy that hopefully will serve you well later in life. Yeah, it's an anxiety-provoking game in a great way. I mean, because so for listeners, I played Khrushchev. So not only am I having to interpret um, what's going on in the media, but I also have to keep an eye on the other folks at my table who are some, in some cases, my ally, in some cases, trying to undermine me. And I can see the American table, but I can't talk to them. So it's 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 just a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful game. And dare I say, um, I think there's application outside the classroom too. I, I can see that game as being really fun for like a local game club to play. It's just 
super interesting. Oh, absolutely. And that when it comes to market, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be available as a classroom implement, but it's also going to come out in a way that if a gaming club just wants to have a fun 90 minute or two hour game night, um, that it can be, it can be run that way. Absolutely. If an organization wants to do a seminar on decision-making under stress, it's built in a way that that or that that corporation can do that. So we see lots of different applications. For and it. I would say too, being a person that's run so many simulations, I think what really differentiates, and I know other companies are doing this, but what really differentiates this simulation from others that I've played is because of the digital technology, it's making decisions um, and generating information faster than a human could. Because, you know, back in the day, if you're running a game like this, it's almost like, and I've seen this happen, like where the GM has to write out by hand or type out and circulate notes around the room, which don't get me wrong, that's fun. But for a game like this to be played in 90 minutes to two hours is remarkable. And I think that that the app, the technology that you're using is really what's kind of facilitating that. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that we were really proudest of is XM isn't just there of, ooh, this is cool tech, let's do it. From the very beginning, the whole point of putting XM in the mix was we wanted the instructor, we wanted the game master to be able to spend the maximum amount of time actually listening to what their students were doing and teaching and coaching and less time, as you said, frantically scribbling notes or typing away at, at, at the keyboard. We didn't, you know, to run this, we didn't want an instructor to have to have a phalanx of graduate assistants that were supporting <laughs> them on this. We wanted a, a teacher to be able to pull this game off the shelf, run it in one class ses- session, one or two class sessions with their students and have a great time without a lot of external support. Yeah, you know, it's also funny. It's like, it's such an immersive, I know I'm talking too much about this game, but like, it's great. Um, it was so immersive that like as Khrushchev, right? And I, I did this in a loving way, I think. I found myself just being so flustered by the media because like they're coming over and they're asking me all the questions that I don't want them to ask. And it's like, it, it, it really, I gave the person a hug when it was over because I was like, I probably was so difficult to deal with. But yeah. all right. So we are just about out of time in terms of this podcast. But as I was saying, right, like at some point or another, you'll definitely come back and we can dive a little deeper into some of these topics. Now, I'll talk about Nasaga in a second, but what I really want to focus on right now was 42 Ed Games. So Right. If somebody is listening out there, whether it's a teacher or a person that works in the corporate world, and they're looking for the kind of support that 42 Ed Games can provide, what would be the best way for them to find you? So easiest way, uh, come to my website. So it's 42, you know, the number four, the number two, ed, dot games. Uh, so not dot com, it's dot games. So 42ed, dot games. Uh, you can come to my website. You can see some examples of the work that I've done. Uh, and you can see a contact form there to get in touch with me. If you just want to kind of monitor and follow the kinds of things that I'm doing uh, on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, for as long as Twitter still exists, um, and Instagram, um, uh, are, my handle is all the same, 42ED games across the board. And if you want to get periodic updates, but you are absolutely just 
done with social media. And trust me, I get why you would be totally done with social media. Um, you can come onto my website and there's a, there's a subscription link for a newsletter there. You provide your email address. You'll get a newsletter from me once a month. I don't sell your email. Uh, I won't spam you, but once a month, you'll get kind of the best of class stuff that I'm putting out to folks talking about educational games uh, and game-based learning. And, you know, if you don't want to be bothered with any of that and you just want to do an email, you can email me at ray, R-A-Y, at 42ed.games. Thank you so much, Ray. And and building off that, if you're listening out there and you are thinking to yourself, this Nasaga conference sounds really great. Um, what I would suggest would be to go online, all right, www.nasaga.org. Um, hop on the website. You can get some uh, information about the organization there. So remember, uh, Nasaga, uh, basically what it means is um, North American Simulations and Games Association. The conference this year that Ray and I have been kind of talking about is being held in St. Louis towards the end of October. It is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful experience. And I can tell you that if, if this conversation today and some of the others that I've had on this podcast sound interesting to you, then it's it's almost like enjoying roller coasters and then going to Disney World or Disneyland. That's the way I would frame it. Um, so, though. right. I mean, right. I mean, I don't think I'm necessarily saying anything out of turn, right? I mean, this is this is true. Yeah, <laughs> this is like biblical. Yes, yeah. biblical set in stone should have been the 11th commandment, you know? All right. So, right. This was really fun. I really appreciate, appreciate the fact that you uh, were interested in coming on and having this conversation. Yeah, this was great, Jared. Uh, thanks for your time and thanks for the hard work that you've done with your students uh, and and you know, in the community more broadly and advocating for game based learning. It's it's really important to have people like you that are that are doing the hard work. So thank you. Well, that is that is probably too kind, but I'm going to take that compliment. Thank you, Ray. Uh, I appreciate that. And for all the listener, listeners out there, have a wonderful day. All right, and I hope that uh, when this pod comes out, I hope that you enjoy it. All right. One more time, Ray, thank you so much. I'm going to sign off now. Have a good one. Thanks, Jared. Bye, people. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www nasaga.org my instagram handle is hmgs underscore nextgen underscore inc until next time be well get some gaming in and roll some 20s thank you so much